Hello and welcome to the next episode in our Diversity Faculty podcast series. I'm Simon Kerr Davis, Counsel in the Employment and Incentives team, and I'm joined today by my fellow member of the Diversity Faculty, Daniel Danso, our Global Diversity Leader. And today we're going to talk about diversity training, what is effective and what isn't. So Daniel, we used to do a lot of training based on harassment, discrimination and bullying. And over the more recent years, that's changed much more towards diversity and inclusion. So how effective do you think diversity training can be? Um, it's a really interesting question that I, I think we get a lot of a lot of times. And to be honest, you know, training is only as effective as the people attending it let it be. Um, it's it's in my opinion what happens after the training that really matters. Um, I, I think we're we're in a a hybrid world right now where half of us are in person and the other half are virtual. Um, we're trying to manage everything from our busy lives to our busy work lives and carving out the time to get into any type of training that a business is going to put out um, is one thing to attend but actually using the information that you get to inform how you work, how people around you approach you and the culture that you create, that takes effort. And I think um, if a business hasn't created the, the right environment where people can take advantage of the, of the infrastructure that they're building, then you're just having great training that will be ineffective because you know not only will people not attend, but they won't feel the importance that the business places on their understanding the, the things that they're trying to get across in training. So when I train personally, um, I try to make it as bespoke as possible. I you know, have done the groundwork to understand the groups that I'm talking to, the environments that they're in, and what they go through on a day-to-day -day basis so that it's not just um, awareness raising. And I think there's a, a big distinction between awareness raising and training. I think awareness raising is about giving them the concept, almost that that you know um, knowledge set about the subject itself. But training is something different. It it actually is designed to try and move behaviors to take that information and create the right spaces for people. So, so given that we're now through that awareness raising phase, as you as you said. Is this really more about facilitation and getting people to speak up about themselves and about their own situations? I mean, I think, I, I think we have to acknowledge that not everybody is out of the awareness raising phase. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's important. It, it, a lot of it's going to depend on where a business or a group or a team or a function, whatever, um, where they're at with the, the information that DNI is trying to get across to them. Um, but I definitely think that the strength in training, um, and I'm talking training, not awareness raising, is around the facilitation. It's how those spaces are created. I mean, a lot of times, especially with the race conversations that we've been having post Black Lives Matter, you know, those courageous conversations, we were doing that over video phone and over WebEx. And, you know, we were expecting for people to have super personal conversations about their life experiences and their experiences at work where they couldn't read the normal physical cues they were doing it all you know virtually so those things needed somebody that didn't just know the subject but could actually 
make sure that those spaces where we were talking about very contentious things could be really safe so that people could make mistakes without being you know, pigeon-held as a racist or a sexist or a homophobe and where people who were going through these things could actually talk about their experiences safely so that they knew if I talked about something that happened to me at work, the next thing I know, I, you know it's, it's not like I'll stop getting you know, uh, promoted or I'll stop getting assessed correctly. You know, there's a lot of fear around some of those spaces. Can you talk a bit about how you make that space safe, though? We've both been in environments where we have seen issues become contentious among the people in the room, issues become difficult. These are brave conversations that we're asking people to have. So how do you give them that, that assurance that this is a safe training environment? I mean, I think creating safe spaces is, is fundamental to any of these. Um, the first thing that I think anybody needs to do is to make sure that they're in line with the the sponsors of that, that piece of training. So I like to work with whoever the team leaders are, the managers are, the board members, the directors, whoever is leading that function. I like to work with them first so that I can understand how best to communicate to the group of people that I'm talking to. What is their language? What is their day-to-day? -day so that you know it's not just me coming with knowledge about unconscious bias, but it's bias in how it works out in their day-to-day, -day, in their industry, for their group, because that's where it becomes more real. And, and, and again, that's the difference between awareness raising. I can come and do a TED Talk about unconscious bias, but creating a space where people can actually feel like this is relevant to them takes a little bit of pre-work, but in the room, it also takes a lot of forming. So in the very beginning, you know, a, a really good facilitator will kind of set the expectations for what they can and can't cover within the hour that they may have. Um, and also really uh, set the expectations for what those individuals need to do following that hour. Yeah. Yeah, actually, you, you always talk about the importance of the preparatory work of getting to know the client, of understanding their, understanding their business. But you've also always talked about the follow up. So let's just, let's just think about follow-ups now, where after you've done a training session, what sort of follow-up would you expect to be involved in? What sort of follow-up would, would you expect the client to do themselves? It's really interesting, like, you know, we, I'll use the example of uh, building an inclusive culture, which is a session that we designed and, and developed and delivered in Linklaters. And the interesting thing is nobody really remembers the session, but they remember the behaviors that we were trying to engender in that session and I think that's when you know a, a piece of training transcends just whoever is facilitating it and actually is something that's a bit more sustainable um, so with that I think the the unique things that I'd, I'd want to pull out were we didn't have them go in you know without having something at the end for them to commit to and these things were uh, a, a cachet of things that they had as opportunities in their day-to-day. -day. Not everybody was going to be a team leader. So, you know, creating spaces for everybody to um, give in a team meeting wasn't something everyone could do. But what we were able to find is what they did on a day-to-day -day basis. Where were the opportunities that they could interject, that they could challenge? But the important thing for them was the, the homework of going out and, and really articulating what environments really built them up and which environment shut them down because we could help provide that environment you know for individuals but what we can't do is you know mitigate every single you know uh, interaction that people may have so we tried to teach them the skills that they needed in order to find out which situations help them challenge 
how they were going to do it, if it wasn't for them to challenge in this particular you know, piece of training, it was did they know the right roads to. So it was, it was more about giving them a concrete understanding that this won't work if they don't give into it and they have to find a way for it to be natural to them and within the context of what we as a business were going to provide them. And I think that's the way any piece of training really connects to how the business operates. So what are the trends that you're seeing in the sort of training that you're being asked for? I mean, some of the, the, the biggest trends are really the discrete groups and levels that we're starting to see needing training more. The one thing about 2020 and 2021, if you think about it, those years of crises, um, you know, the ones that, that started with uh, political unrest and COVID and, you know, race and, and uh, all of these different things that are happening are just starting to prove that the leaders today don't necessarily have the, the skills to manage today's workforce. They're still trying to use, you know, old skills. And when we have young people, like I said, that are connected to the internet in ways that they are, we're suddenly having to monitor, you know, everything that we say. Um, we have leaders now who are regular citizens who have just become senior, who are expected to talk about things, um, you know, in countries that we don't even operate in. Like when Afghanistan happened, you know, our people were expecting us to have a comment on it. And so that is something that we're seeing leaders today, you know, those skills that they, that they actually need, they're, they're not ones that they've been provided. So what the trends that I'm seeing are more and more senior groups of, of people in businesses from board, uh, exec teams, senior management teams, um, really needing and wanting to have training on how they can look at certain things that come across their desk that aren't obviously clear about DNI, like COVID. At first, we thought COVID was just a health, you know, epidemic. But then, when we looked at that through the lens of DNI, we saw the LGBT community was experiencing it differently. Racial communities were socioeconomically. We were so. How do business leaders look at something like COVID and instantly be able to see what they need to do for the diverse groups that you know that that may work for them? And those are skills that they didn't have before, and that people weren't really helping them with. So for me, um, the trends, you're going to start seeing a lot more senior groups being challenged and being tutored on, on how to uh, incorporate some of the diverse perspectives that they're needing to now make decisions on. And I think the last thing is that we're starting to see companies taking ownership of like some of their subsidiaries. Um, we're even seeing you know, asset management companies looking at bringing diversity and inclusion to their entire portfolio base through their non-exec directors. So, you know, we're, we're really seeing uh, more of a top-level educational, um, I guess, slant towards training, and that's going to be the trend. We've already had a whole lot of infrastructure for the main body of the population, and I think right now we're really looking at leaders. Okay. So if you were planning a, um, a training session, um, what would be your, your top tip? for planning it in a way which means it will work best? Uh, I think I would really have to start with the, the leaders in the organization who are going to either support people attending these trainings or to, to make it real uh, for the business and not just a tick box. I mean, we, again, there are loads of different brilliant training programs and a lot of infrastructure in, build, in businesses where 
you know, these things are readily available, but the one thing we can't mitigate for is whether or not the business values it enough to let their people go. And if they value it enough to let their people go, then it's, it's really a kind of a departure from what we've seen previously, where diversity and inclusion training was great if you had the time to do it in your busy work. And now, you know, the, the real implications of what we're paid to do in a business, which is to create a culture around us that lets everybody else do their best work, plus do our best work, then I think diversity training has to be taken more seriously. If we just jump back to where I started this conversation, which was the sort of the historic kind of training that we used to do, which was very definitely a compliance issue. It was, you know, we don't want people to discriminate. Let's, let's make sure that people understand what that is and how to avoid it. Um, do you think that the increased involvement of regulators runs the risk that we're moving back to a more compliance-driven form of training? Um, I think that there, there is a risk for those businesses that didn't understand what diversity and inclusion training was actually giving them. I mean, if, if, they, if they're truly after creating a culture where diverse perspectives and experiences can flourish, then they have to understand that diversity training is the vehicle with which people can understand how to navigate those things. They're not getting it in their regular lives, which is why you see all of the challenges in the world around us right now. So we have a, a unique opportunity in the workplace to actually construct the culture um, and to inform it with things like diversity training, awareness sessions in those critical spaces. But again, if if a business isn't of the mindset that it is critical, it will treat it as an elective. And when it's treated as an elective, we see what happens. People don't go, things won't change, and we will end up exactly where we are a year from now, asking whether or not training works. Thank you, Daniel. Um, so that's all on this podcast. If you want to learn more about our training offerings and uh, any of the issues that we've raised in this discussion, uh, please do contact us. Thank you. Bye for now.